The following sermon podcast is a glimpse into the community of Central Bible Church, where we strive to welcome everyone into Jesus' life. We hope that you can join us for this Sunday service as we gather together seeking to live in and for Christ. to read for us Philemon, where Asha is going to be preaching out of today. I'm going to read the whole book again, just like we did last week, but it's just one chapter, so you can bear with me. All right. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. To Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you? both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it, to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Damas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Amen. Good morning. How you guys doing? Everyone finished your house projects for the summer? Right? Totally done? Ready for the winter? The true test of a Portlander is you're excited. Finally, Mother Rain has returned. Right? Who, who's happy about it? Oh, come on. Okay. I'm a, I'm a tropical boy. Like, I, I dread it. So... It is. It's a sad thing that our summers don't last very long, but that's the, that's the life that we endure. 
for beautiful Northwest, right? So I think it's worth it. Well, we got one more week in Philemon, and I want to start us where every good sermon begins, um, a Harvard uh, study on adult development. Um, it's actually the longest running study on adult life. Started in 1938, tracking people through the Great Depression. And so the results of this Harvard study were published. Um, last year, there was like a viral TED Talk about it. You can look up. But there's just a, a couple really interesting things that they found. Uh, a couple quotes. It says, the surprising finding of this study is that our relationships and how happy we are in our relationships has a powerful influence on our health. It turns out that people who are more socially connected to family, to friends, and to community are happier. They're physically healthier, and they live longer than people who are not connected. Thus says Harvard. The first lesson you can take from this study is this, that social connections are really good for us, and loneliness kills. That's a quote from the study. And a final quote, people who are more isolated than they want to be from others find that they are less happy, their health declines earlier in midlife, their brain functioning declines sooner, and their lives, and they live shorter lives than people who are not lonely. So doctor's orders, get in community, right? Pursue wholesome family and church and work relationships. Now, applying that to the scriptures, right, and even just a, a Christian worldview, one of the tests of the validity of a worldview is how well does it correspond to the world that we actually live in, right? Does it have explanatory power? Do the scriptures help us explain the world around us? Well, a little kid in Sunday school who's read his, his Bible could tell you what this Harvard study took about 80 years to discover, right? God says to Adam, in the beginning, right? He creates everything. He created and he said, it was good. Then he creates Adam and he's alone. And you hear the first thing that is not good. And this is before sin. This is before brokenness and rebellion and, and the creation gets jacked up, right? It just says, no, it is not good that Adam is alone. Intrinsic to our, our identity, how we are made, is that we are made to live in community, right? It goes back to ontology, right? Back to our nature of being. And a biblical worldview says that it's a part of the Imago Dei. How you were created is to be in a relationship because that's what God is like, right? We believe in, in a, the Trinity. We believe in a God who is three in one, a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that exists in, in an eternity of loving, self-sacrificial relationship, of full love, service, and self-disclosure, ultimate vulnerability, and ultimate safety. And that's our identity. That's where we have come from. That that's where this, the very fabric of our nature and of creation is one of relationship. Right? But after the fall, after sin, all of a sudden relationship is 
messy, is difficult, it hurts. And in fact, the more you love, the more you get close to people in relationship, the more vulnerable you become to pain, right? The people that hurt us most are those that we are closest to. And so in this letter to Philemon, it's just a simple story, but what we see is a broken relationship being restored. We see a glimpse of the kingdom of God coming, right? Turning things to rights, taking a broken relationship and bringing peace and reconciliation. And so a summary principle that you could put over this book is this. It's simple. It's just gospel, and I'll put it up here. Gospel plus relationship equals transformation. Gospel plus relationship equals transformation. If, if we embrace the gospel but avoid relationship, we won't experience God's transformation fully in our lives, and we won't be used by God to bring transformation to others, right? The gospel minus relationship is the fallacy that God somehow works in the world apart from his people. It's the lie that we can somehow understand the Bible, reading it all alone, apart from our community, right? It's the lie that we don't need anyone else in our life. We don't need anyone else knowing us, knowing our needs, praying for us, hearing our confession. We just got it. We got it figured out. That is the gospel minus relationship, and it doesn't lead to transformation. On the other side, if you just take relationship and you minus the gospel, you either are going to fall into one of two errors, law or license, right? Either your relationships are, are going to be governed entirely by your expectations of others, and either they're going to reach, reach those expectations and live up to them, and you're going to be okay with the relationship, you're going to reward them, they're going to be good enough, or they're going to not live up to them, and you're going to punish them, or you're going to run from that relationship, or not just other people, us. You won't live up to your own expectations, right? And you'll punish yourself. You'll think you're not good enough for relationships. That's what law does to us. It's destructive. And the other side is license, or what our, our culture just calls love, right? And it just pretends to be love. It's I accept people, I tolerate people, I tolerate views, but I don't care enough about them to desire their growth or their transformation or what is good and beautiful and right. It's irrelevant, right? It's, it's the parent who's totally afraid of crossing the will of their child. Oh, oh yeah, I don't want to say no. I don't want to take away that thing. If, if you're afraid of crossing the will of your child, whether it's a two-year-old, a five-year-old, or a 17-year-old, they, they run the house. <laughs> or if you're afraid of speaking that hard word to your roommate or your friend because you don't want to be rejected by them, right? you can't experience transformation in relationship. Right? So we need gospel plus relationship. That's what leads to transformation. And that gospel is this. I, it's, it's God saying to us, I see you in all your mistakes and failures, and still, I love you, right? He says, 
at the same time as that message of acceptance, he says, I have made you for so much more than this. I want so much more for you. And by my spirit, I want to help you to grow and reach the full potential that I've made you for. The gospel says it's okay to not be okay, but it's not okay to stay that way. And so, the letter to Philemon. Let's look at there now. Look at it now. And we're going to tease out this theme. Gospel plus relationship equals transformation. And we're going to do it in three ways. I want us to imagine for ourselves for a minute ourselves in the, the shoes of each of the three people in this letter. There's Philemon, there's Paul, and there's Onesimus. I want us to ask ourselves three questions. First, is this a letter that I am prepared to receive? That's putting yourself in Philemon's shoes. Is this a letter I'm prepared to receive? Second, is this a letter that I'm prepared to write? Could I write something like this, like Paul does? And then third, is this a letter that has been written on my behalf. We never hear anything from Onesimus, right? He didn't say anything. But this letter was written on his behalf. So those are our, our three points, our three questions that we're gonna ask ourselves. First, is this a letter that I am prepared to receive? So imagine for a moment with me that Paul the Apostle is going to write you a personal letter about a relationship in your life, about a particular person who has wronged you in a significant way. Okay? Take a moment and think about that, maybe who that person might be. In this letter, Paul says, hey, this person has experienced a powerful transformation in the gospel. They've experienced God's powerful work of forgiveness for them in their life. They're not perfect, but they've been forgiven and restored. And then Paul says, I invite you to forgive them and to receive them and seek to be reconciled to them. Would you be ready for that letter to show up in the mail or in your inbox? How would you respond? How would I respond? So, as we look through this letter, if it was a personal letter to us, there might be some things that stood out to us. And just three come to mind. First, the way that he affirms God's work in our life. Right? Some of you are like, oh, shoot, that's a scary letter to receive. Right? I, I don't know if I'm ready for that. But there's a lot of encouragement that Philemon here. So first, right? He affirms God's work in his life. He says, right, you are loved. You are family. Look at verse 1. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker. Right? He says, hey, you are a beloved brother. You're a fellow worker. And then he goes on to encourage Philemon. He says, people have been impacted by, by your love, by your service for them. Look at verse 7. He says, for I've derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Right? There's a word of encouragement. 
He sees God's grace in your life. And then look in verse 14. He doesn't demand or threaten you. Yeah, you got to get right with this person. Yeah, God can't forgive you if you won't forgive them. There's, there's, there's no harsh word in this letter. Instead, look at this. He says, verse 14, But I preferred to do nothing without your consent, in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. Isn't that amazing? God doesn't want to rip forgiveness out of you. He doesn't want to drag you kicking and screaming. You've you, you got to do the right thing. No, he says, from your own heart, I want this to happen. That's encouraging. That's helpful. But then, right, it does get a little challenging. And we would notice in this letter the way that he applies this conflict he applies the gospel to this conflict, not in a general way. Yeah, yeah, I should in general live at peace with people. But he applies it in, to a particular person or group. Right? It's not a general letter about Christians ought to get along. It's a personal letter and Paul names names. Right? He says Onesimus, the guy who ripped you off, who ran away, him He's the one you need to be reconciled to. Someone that has to be forgiven. This is someone that perhaps we're holding bitterness in our hearts towards. Perhaps we're still angry. We still do things to get back at them, whether aggressively or passive aggressively. Maybe we still talk about them in a hurtful way. Or we, we let the, the, the record play in our heads of how they've wronged us, what they've done to us, how we were in the right, how they, we didn't deserve what they did. Maybe we refuse to talk about them. Maybe we don't answer their emails. Whatever it is, look what he says to us in verse 15. He says, For this is perhaps why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. But what he's talking about, he's... Paul's reframing the Onesimus, stealing from him and running away and saying, perhaps God was in this. Perhaps, because he wasn't a Christian before he left. And then he somehow meets with Paul, receives the gospel, comes to faith in Christ, and now is going to return to Philemon. And he's reframing, he's saying, could God have been in this conflict? Could God be using this conflict for your good and for his glory? He's just saying, perhaps God was in this. He's reframing us, inviting us to think of it in a God-centered way. Or verse 16, he says, And receive him back, right, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. He invites you, he invites us to see this person as God sees them, right? To step back and say, oh, how does God look at this person? And then look at verse 17. So if you consider me your partner, that, that's the word for fellowship. If you could consider yourself to have fellowship with me, receive him as you would receive me. So God invites us to receive that person as we would receive, right? 
an honorable guest, even as we would receive Christ. It's a powerful challenge, but a powerful invitation to reconciliation that he gives us. So that's the first question. Is this a letter that I'm prepared to receive? The second one, is this a letter that I'm prepared to write? If you can receive Paul's letter to you, if you can receive a letter like that, God may be preparing you to write a letter like that as well. Right? This is what that means. This is what that might look like. When Paul writes his letter, he uses his influence and resources to advocate for Onesimus. Right? And he's not doing anything different than what all Christians are called to do. You might say, oh, well, yeah, he's Paul the Apostle. He, he has the authority. He can, like, speak into this situation. Look at verse, this is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 through 19. I'm going to read this. He says this. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and hear this, gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, Christ, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So, we have been reconciled to God. We have been made new creations and now we share in this ministry of reconciliation. Not just verbalizing this gospel. Some of us can do that well. But also embodying this gospel. Not just talking about it, but working to accomplish reconciliation. So, if we're going to write a letter like this, or better yet, embody a letter like this, Right, Because you see, Paul puts teeth to this, right? He's like, I will pay what he owes. He, he steps in. He doesn't just do it at a distance. So what's going to be important for us to remember if we are going to embody a letter like this? First, look at how Paul uses his resources and his influence to advocate for Onesimus. In verse 10, right, he says, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. And then verse 18. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. Charge that to my account. So, right, we need to ask ourselves, who are the people in our life or who are the people in our society who have no one else to advocate for them? First, start in your family or in your church. Are there relationships that you could help to be a peacemaker? Is there gossip that you could help to quiet? Is there someone who has left the fellowship of the body, whether left Christ entirely or just left the community of believers? Is there someone that you could pursue in love to help them be reconciled to those who they are running from? Or is there someone that you could speak words of encouragement in the way that you see God working in their life? 
Those are practical ways that we would embody this, the message of this letter. But we can't just stop there, right, with, with our, our church relationships and this, and this circle of community we have here, right? There are others in society that have no voice that we can advocate for. Children come to mind for me. And so it might look like a consistent ethic of life, which means that we might advocate for children when they are voiceless in the womb. But we would also advocate for them to have access to education without the fear of their classmates bringing assault rifles to school. The call of the gospel requires that we be willing to give up our so-called reproductive choices and limit our so-called gun rights if it means that the most defenseless members of our society can be protected and given a chance to live and go to school without the fear of violence. Violence either at the hands of a doctor with a meat hook or at the hands of an, a mentally unstable teenager who has easy access to military-grade weapons. Another group might be refugees or asylum seekers. Are there ways that we can be a people of hospitality? Right? Romans uh, 12, 13 says this. It says, seek to show hospitality. And in, that, uh, in the original language and in that, that culture and context, Hospitality wasn't like, like straightening up the house so we can have tea after church, right? It's literally loving strangers. It's welcoming the sojourner. Hmm. Okay, so I'm keenly aware that these are politically charged words. I'm not trying to be political. I'm trying to wrestle with the implications of the word of God. And here's the thing, our culture is so politicized, you literally can't say anything meaningful about anything without it being viewed as political or partisan, right? Right? You say something on Facebook about whatever, ah, it's political. No, it's not. Maybe, right? And if you're genuinely seeking, I follow some of you on Facebook, <laughs> So, some of us are more political than others. Um, if you are genuinely seeking to understand the Bible and apply it in your life, not just in this vertical relationship with God, but in relationships and in society, right? You're not going to fit perfectly into any political mold that this world seeks to make for you, right? You're going to hold views that offend people on both sides. That's the reality. And I would challenge you, if you fit perfectly into any political mold that our, our culture has created, you, <laughs> your Christianity is, is far more shaped by our culture than you want to admit. So, as we engage in giving voice to the voiceless, as we encourage reconciliation, we, we need to remember the tone of how he writes and speaks, right? Love and kindness. kindness. So much political dialogue, 
So much social activism in our day is filled with violent rhetoric. Angry rhetoric that vilifies anyone who doesn't fit into our mold, who doesn't perfectly match what we think is the right view. That's not how Paul writes. And if we're, we're being called to speak up, and to advocate for the voiceless and called to be workers of reconciliation, our tone is absolutely essential, right? The heart of Christ, right? The heart of Christ, writing and speaking and engaging with warmth and love. Now, here's the final piece. As we think about embodying a letter like this, it's to realize that that we are doing this before a watching world, right? In this world where everything's political and vitriolic, right, and angry, Christ followers are called to engage lovingly, humbly, and truthfully. And in the church, we should not be a people that divide over generational preferences by doctrinal minutiae or by political party. We're people of reconciliation. We're people that unite around the gospel. And when we do this, the secular culture looks in and they see something different, right? Oh, that this is not just a, a, a polit- political lobby to accomplish some, some power trip um, for a moral majority. These are, these are people living subversively in a broken society that don't fit any cultural mold that are following Jesus, right? Who challenged and offended and yet welcomed everyone that he came in contact with. And so, the gospel plus relationship brings transformation. Can we be a people that can embody a letter like Philemon? And then finally, The last question, is this a letter that has been written on my behalf? Perhaps some of us are in Onesimus' place, right? There are people that you know you have wronged, and you don't know how to make things right, or you're afraid to do so. This is a letter that's written on your behalf, right? So Paul wrote this for Onesimus to be delivered to Philemon to say, accept him as you'd accept me. He advocates for him. This letter has been written on our behalf because, right, Jesus has said this to the Father. What he has done, charge that to my account, Welcome him back as you would welcome me. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. The way that you have wronged that person, that that you still feel guilty about, you still have shame of, you don't know how to make right. God says, that is forgiven. That is paid for on the cross. That's the gospel. Okay? But some of you just rest in that. And you stop there. It's gospel plus relationship that brings transformation. 
that relationship piece, that's the, I'm picking up the phone. That's the, I'm writing the letter. I'm sending the text. Right? I'm repaying the debt. That's, Onesimus still had to go back. He was a fugitive slave. He's, he had to suck up his pride. He had to trust, okay, will Philemon actually accept me? Will he listen to the words of Paul? Or am I, is he going to throw me in prison? Is he going to put my head on the chopping block? What, whatever. He had to take that journey back. And that's what we're called to do. Some of us need to, to write that letter. Others of us, whether or not you have that unreconciled relationship with another person that you've wronged, this morning you are deeply aware of your need to be reconciled to God. Right? And you experience the shame of sin and you, you, you're afraid of coming back or you don't know how to come back. You have this sense, and maybe you even heard this in church, that you have to do things. You have to do penance. You have to somehow make yourself good enough for God to hear your prayers or to forgive you. You're like the prodigal son, right, who, who blows his inheritance on, on wild living. And then he loses it all, and he's at the bottom, the bottom, right? And he's, he's digging through the trash, eating scraps, and he comes up with a plan of how he's going to earn his father's favor again. Right? He rehearses what he's going to say. I'm going to go back. I'm going to say, Dad, I blew it. Would you just hire me? Let me be one of your hired hands. Let me work for you again, Dad. I'm not good enough to be your son. Can I be your employee? Right? That, that, that's that plan to save ourselves. That's our plan to clean up our lives well enough to get back. It's not relying on the letter that Christ has written on our behalf. It's relying on the quality of our repentance or the, or the goodness of our church attendance or our prayer life or whatever. Fill in the blanks. The, the Pharisee saying, I thank you, God, that I'm not like the others. Right? No. Wherever you are in that place of hiding in shame, trying to earn God's approval. Jesus says this on your behalf. He says this to the Father. Father, since I am your partner, since we have fellowship with one another, receive him. Receive her as you would receive me. That's amazing. We are received by God as he would receive Jesus. That's the gospel in relationship with God. Now here's how that changes the horizontal relationships. When you know that this letter has been written on your behalf, and only when that happens, can you be prepared? Can you have the courage and the humility to receive a letter like this? A letter that challenges you to forgive where you have been wronged. Right? Only the gospel frees our hearts to forgive even the most heinous sins. Because we now see that person as God sees them. 
And only when we know that Christ has written this letter on our behalf can we be the kind of people with the humility and the courage to write letters like this. Better yet, right? To embody letters like this, to live this kind of life where we sacrifice for, where we give up our privilege, we give up our resources and our advantages for the sake of others, for the sake of those that don't have a voice, for the sake of those broken relationships in our life. That's what the gospel does. The gospel plus relationship brings transformation. Now I want to end with a story. It's a courageous story of a Christian woman who knew the gospel, right? who knew that Christ had written a letter like this on her behalf. She was accepted in Christ. She's a woman who lived a life of embodying letters like this. In fact, she hid Jews in her home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. She risked her life for the sake of the voiceless. Okay? But then God challenged her in a profound way. Right? She knew Christ had written this letter for her. She would write letters like this. She lived like this. But was she ready to receive a letter like this? Was she ready to forgive? So this is, if you haven't already guessed, this is a, um, I'm going to read a quote from Corey Tenboom um, about this experience that she had. We're going to close with this. She says, It was in a church in Munich that I saw him, a balding, heavy-set man in a gray overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. People were filling out the basement room where I had just spoken, moving along the rows of wooden chairs to the door at the rear. It was 1947, and I had come from Holland to defeat Germany with the message that God forgives. It was the truth they needed most to hear in that bitter, bombed-out land. And I gave them my favorite mental picture, maybe because the sea is never far from a Hollander's mind. I liked to think that's where forgiven sins were thrown. When we confess our sins, I said, God cast them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. The solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. There were never questions after a talk in Germany in 1947 when people stood up in silence, in silence collected their wraps, in silence left the room. And that's when I saw him working his way forward against the others. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, the next a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush, the huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor. Shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you were. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent. Now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. A fine message, Fraulein. How good it is to know that, as you say, 
all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among those thousands of women? But I remembered him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. It was the first time since my release that I had been face to face with one of my captors, and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravenbrook. In your talk, he was saying, I was a guard in there. No, he did not remember me. But since that time, he went on, I had become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there. But I would like to hear it from your lips as well, Fraulein. Again, the hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there. I whose sins had every day be forgiven, been forg- had every day to be forgiven, and could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out. But to me, it seemed like hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had, I had ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition, that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. I knew it not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. And still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will. And the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so, woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one outstretched to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried, with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. Let's pray. Jesus, we, we want to know your love. We want to, to hear you speak those words, to hear you write those words, even on our hearts, that we are loved children, that what we have done is charged to your account, and you have said to God, accept him, accept her as you've, as you've welcomed and accept me. 
Lord. And we want to want to be people that now work reconciliation, that can forgive and be forgiven. Help us to walk out this gospel in relationship, in practical, in real ways. We invite you, Holy Spirit, now to work in our midst and in our hearts. Heal your people, Lord Jesus. Amen. We desire to be formed by the Word of God in community. If you have questions about this week's sermon, we would love to hear from you. For more information about our church, please visit centralbible.church.